I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Jamie Lee, the co-head of M&A at Cooley in San Francisco. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us. It's really a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we're, we're going to talk about several things on the podcast today. We're, we're going to talk a little bit about your background, how you ended up in M&A, and how you ended up at Cooley. And then we're going to talk about both your management responsibilities and your views of law firm management and about your practice. And finally, we're going to uh, talk about how you stay sane generally and how you're doing so as we go into the sixth month of the pandemic. So with that, just tell us a little bit about your background, how you ended up going to law school and going into M&A. I was always quite interested in business. As a student, I was your stereotypical English major at the University of Virginia with no plan. But in all seriousness, I knew I wanted to do a combination of something that had to do with business, but never lost this very strong interest in the written word, the spoken word. There was something very sort of academically pleasing to me about continuing to study from a legal perspective. And so while I didn't know what that really meant, there are no lawyers in my family. I come from a a long line of of farmers and fishermen, and um, my father was the first, my mother was the first to move to the big city of Seattle. I did know that I wanted to do something that merged this love of the written word with what was very keenly a business driver for me. So I knew I would figure it out as I went along. And law school really helped me understand the difference between litigation and business. And thank goodness for the University of Law School's business program, because I got to investigate what the subject matter really would be. And I got lucky. I got a little lucky. I went to practice in New York at Davis Polk. As all good first-year associates who want to do M&A do, they head to New York. And it was a little bit love at first sight for me from a deal perspective. And I knew that my intuition had sort of led me in the right place. And your your father, you said, was involved in business. And so you grew up hearing about his business. Yeah, Much like we have some issues with health insurance at the moment, 30 years ago, we had some pretty serious issues with municipal insurance. And my father created a business that merged the public and private sectors so that cities, not big, huge cities, but sort of medium sized and smaller sized cities were able to keep their incorporation and provide for themselves under an insurance regime that actually fit the needs. And from there, he went on to model that with other states and created reinsurance captives. And if you know anything about insurance, it sort of sounds boring for the first two minutes of a cocktail party, but it's actually a fascinating industry. And so listening to him at the dinner table every night talk about his own innovation, his own ability to negotiate between a city council and a big reinsurer, I think I started to understand what it meant to be both an entrepreneur, but a driver and a steward of business. And it was very formative for me. Looking back, I tease him a little bit, you know, who knew all those boring insurance stories would get me where I am today. And we have a good laugh about that. But watching someone work through the personal side of what you come home with every day from a business perspective, I think is invaluable. So I actually try to talk to my kids as much as I can about what it is actually that's going on when I'm sitting on the phone by the side of the road (laughs) Uh, instead of joining the kids inside for dinner, right? 
it's important to pass those lessons along, I think. And you also rode crew in college and then coached crew for a year between college and law school. Yeah, what a blessing that experience was. I rode in high school, and if you wanted to race in college, you either went to the Ivies or you stayed in Seattle at the University of Washington. So I took a chance and went to this new school, (laughs) University of Virginia, that no one in Seattle had ever heard of to race with their team and their absolutely excellent coach. And those relationships from a teammate and racing and discipline perspective are still with me today. And I I can't even begin to express the camaraderie and the community that is developed in athletics in that kind of way to race at a D1 level is, you know, a little daunting to realize at 22, you've hit your peak, (laughs) (laughs) but I wouldn't really trade it for anything. And, and I had a nice, experience between undergrad and law school where I went to go teach at a boarding school in England. And one of the things they really wanted me to do was coach the boys rowing team, which I I say is not common, particularly 20 years ago for a woman to coach a boys rowing team at a prominent boarding school. And the boys were not very happy about it. Let's put it that way. I had just come off of NCAAs and a national team training camp, and I was not too happy about coaching them either. They were uh, all talk, no action. So we bantered for quite some time in the fall season, came to a head, and I said, that's it. We're getting in boats. I'm in a single. You're in fours. Whoever gets to the next town over on the river first wins. You win. I coach the girls. I win. You shut up. And uh, I won. And we went to Henley and had a lovely, lovely season. And it's interesting. I follow the boys and they're all doing incredible things. One renowned architect, couple in the biotech space, one actually back at school teaching. Someday I'll write a book. It'll be in my memoir. It's a very sweet story. And so you went to New York to become a young M&A associate. And did you think you'd stay, make partner, spend your whole life in New York? Or you saw this more as a way to get several years of training and then maybe go do something else? Oh, I was squarely in the camp of three years and I'm out. There was pay off the student loans and then figure out what you want to do for the rest of your life kind of mindset. And certainly nothing wrong with that. And I, you know, I really applaud our associates who come and work really hard to be trained well and then decide what really captures their heart. But here I am <laughs> over over 20 years later, still working in the law firm setting. And, you know, the New York years were incredibly important for me. I was a sponge, like I said, with sort of no formal background in anything related to law. I had no idea what to expect. And that sort of openness or naive mindset did me well. I was, and, and particularly, I think with an athletic background, I took very few things personally. I thought it was my job to just get as good as I could, as fast as I could. And I was extremely lucky to have some very senior partners at the firm take me under their wing. I thought they, they probably thought I was super weird and they were just curious to see what this kid from Seattle who didn't know how to use the subway was going to make her way through life in a New York law firm. But I really enjoyed the camaraderie of sitting in the partner's corner office, watching people banter ideas, understand the pacing and cadence of the deal, the psychology of both client service, but also elite lawyering. I mean, it was just a wonderful time to get my feet into the shallow end of the pool. And 
I think it was my first entree into mentoring relationships too. And that was, if I look back on my career, the one huge distinguishing feature for me and probably while I'm still in a law firm today. And so how did you end up in, in Silicon Valley? I actually came to Silicon Valley for six months. I was determined to never leave New York, but I was filling in for an associate in the West Coast office um, while she took maternity leave. And when I got to the West Coast, what I realized is there was this incredible green field of work available at the upper tier of M&A that no one in New York knew was going on. Because of course, if you're a good New York lawyer, you only care about the deals that you read about in the deal or the cover of the Wall Street Journal or wherever you read your news. And it was quite interesting to look at these new economy kinds of companies and think hard about what that might look like from an M&A perspective long-term. So in addition to really enjoying being back on the West Coast as a West Coast kid, I thought hard about what it would be like to combine this love for M&A with this landscape of new technology and life sciences companies. And so then how did you end up at Cooley? I think there was at least one step along the way there. Oh yeah, let's not have a linear path, right? Let's take a winding road for more fun and intrigue. At the time, and, and I'll just be very candid about my bias coming from New York, I really had no idea how to read or understand the law firm landscape on the West Coast. It looked very different. People were you know, more interested in the hot Series C round company that just got funded than they were my big interesting deal on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. And law firms are just very, very different on the West Coast in terms of how they're organized, how they're run, how partners are compensated. And it was daunting. But the choice I made was to go to Latham because at the time the firm had the best of both worlds, both these big elite practices doing work all over the world, but also, and this part felt key to me, a very boots on the ground approach to companies practice in all of the areas that really make the West Coast tick, life sciences, new technology. At the time, we were thinking about whatever green technology would look like, of course. And you could see this transition coming from the old world model of everything's about semiconductors into what would become a much more diverse and deep economy in technology and life sciences. And so it was a lovely experience. I made partner at Latham. I watched the firm transition quite quickly into the powerhouse that it is today and just learned a ton about how the local economy worked. And then how did you how did you make the move to Cooley? And just, you kept deciding to stay in law, even though it, it sounded like that was not your intention when you, you started out and, and maybe not your intention for a number of years in practice. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I do a little ritual with myself every year where I ask myself, and I've been doing this since I was a first year associate, at the end of every year I say, what I do well, what would I have learned from if I had to do it over again? And do I still like doing what I'm doing? And I've held myself accountable every single year to answer that question quite honestly. Do you just ask yourself that or are there mentors, other people you talk to to kind of hold yourself even more accountable? 100%. You have to always listen for feedback, whether it's direct and solicited or it comes in other more opportune ways. The best advice and the thing that has propelled me from my vantage point, even though I am a loud, obnoxious, pushy M&A lawyer, is to be a good listener. And what's interesting to me about the choice to stay in the law 
is the joy and intrigue of being an advisor. And there's something very noble and very special and very interesting and refreshing year over year about continuing to advise in better, more nuanced, more sophisticated, more human ways. And I never understood myself to have any kind of talent in counseling. You're trained as a student to be smart and find the answer. And I never really thought I would be good at either management or leadership in a business context. And I never thought I would have a voice to really do something like counsel in a boardroom. And that's probably one of the reasons why I never saw myself long-term being a partner in a law firm. But it was only with those small increment kind of reflections that I was able to sort of put myself into the next year, into the next level of seniority, into the next adventure. And when I decided to leave Latham, I thought I was done with the law. I, you know, the sort of hierarchy of the old school law firm model didn't seem fast enough to me to get me into a place where I could use all the skills I just described, which I was even at that sort of young partnership age, starting to understand there was a little bit of this flame inside of me that I wanted to try to cultivate. And I decided I would take a job in Corp Dev at one of our friendly technology companies. And instead, a friend of mine who had left Latham previously to go to Cool, he said, just come over and check it out. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Seen one law firm, seen them all. But he's my friend. So I went to lunch with some of the senior partners at the firm. And I was immediately captivated by two things. The real partnership mentality of the discussion that we were having, it sort of felt old school to me in some really wonderful, endearing ways. And the respect and collegiality and ingenuity with which they were speaking felt very intriguing and worth exploring. And the other piece that was quite interesting to me was the greenfield of business opportunity, the sort of untapped web that exists within a company's focused practice is quite interesting for an M&A practitioner. And I immediately just started rattling through my brain these ideas of what we could do with this incredible client base, these connections, and this very sort of grassroots way of practicing law. So here I am nine years later, really enjoying the ride. And I would certainly never work at a different law firm, but I can't imagine doing anything else. It's been a real privilege. You mentioned, one, your own perception when you entered the law that you would go do something else and your understanding that many of the associates who come to Cooley are going to be there for three or four years and then go on to do something else. Do you think your own experience helps you to relate to those associates and how do you give them guidance And when do you have a really good sense that one of those associates who thinks he or she is going to go do something else in a matter of years is actually going to to stay in the law and become a really great lawyer? Yeah, we call it the spidey sense. You work with associates long enough and you can start to see the energy that they bring to the table that is a real distinguisher. And You know, in this world where we're rethinking the way that we work, whether that's remotely or what it looks like when we all go back to an office in some fashion, we're rethinking the way that the next generation workforce wants to work. We're being more realistic about what parenting leave requires, what work and life, whether that's parenting or not, but life outside of work looks like. It's a very dynamic time to be an employer and to watch some changing values and practices in the employment relationship. And so 
this model that we used to use of come to work, be quiet, watch. If you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. But it's not my job to teach you or very cutthroat competition. Whoever stays up the latest wins kind of mentality. Although I was trained in that sort of mindset and I definitely did just fine in it, that world is gone. And our ability to engage with the generation that is you know, driving the machine, so to speak, of our large service organizations is really key for more of us to get on board with faster, right? I roll my eyes quickly when people complain about millennials or the next generation is X, fill in the blank. The next generation is, and then you get some sort of unhelpful description. The personal connection of allowing an associate to see what it is that they are doing on the other end of the work, helping an executive get to where she or he wants to go in the next stage of the business, maybe helping a GC feel more comfortable in a new position, being the backup to the work product that sits in the boardroom and gets described to make billion dollar decisions. The transparency into the end work product is very important. And showing the work with respect to relationship building is the second piece. So we encourage our associates to build relationships at all levels. And in our technology and life sciences companies, sometimes that's a little bit easier, right? We don't have legal teams of 50 people deep where there's no ability for a law firm associate to speak on a call or to reach out directly to someone. But we have business development budgets for our associates for a reason. We put our associates at younger seniority levels onto the phone and speaking roles for a reason. And I always say, build the relationship where you have it. Start practicing what it looks like to build those relationships as fast and as early as you can, and then stay connected to those people. Our clients are very mobile. People move jobs faster than even I can imagine sometimes. And allowing our relationships at the very junior level to build early is a stickiness, I think, that some other law firms just either can't provide or it's not a part of their mindset for that to be acceptable. But we had a very junior lateral come to us recently, and he asked me permission to go talk to the CEO. And I said, I don't know why you're asking me permission. <laughs> are you going to say something controversial? Uh, and he said, no, I just am, I'm checking in before I do that. And I said, why? And he explained to me that that would not have been appropriate for him at his prior life. And I said, oh, right. I said, you go make as much pie as humanly possible. We have enough pie. And you're not making me nervous about my pie by calling our CEO. And I think that mindset shift of no territorialism, everybody being on the team and pushing the ball forward is the right answer, is essential to the change in business that's required of us today. Let's talk a little bit about your practice, both in terms of industry and type of transaction. Yeah, I love my practice. It's so interesting. There's about a 50-50 split in my practice between buy-side work and sell-side work, and about a 50-50 split between life sciences and technology. And I love it that way. It keeps things quite interesting. The, the bias over time from an M&A perspective has been all on the buy side. Who are your buy side clients? Because the view is that they sit in the system and just keep creating work for you. And that's true. They do. So we should, there is no complaining about buy side clients. But what's interesting about the life sciences and technology sector is those companies are built to exit in some way, shape or form. And to work with repeat entrepreneurs and repeat boards in the sell side is a regular part of what I do. So 
saying goodbye in an M&A exit is just weeks or months away from saying hello to the next company that they start or the next board that they go sit on. And that part's really fun to watch over. Now you have to put the years in, right? You only see these cycles on the sell side when you put in multiple years at a time. But it is invigorating to watch people do the next thing, so to speak. So to sit on both the buy side and the sell side keeps you fresh from a technical and skill set perspective, but also from a relationship perspective to be able to sit in the seat of a first-time entrepreneur selling her or his company. And then two calls later in your lineup for the day, you're on a board call navigating something with a multi-billion dollar price tag on it. It is the joy of practicing in the sectors that I do. And the split with the sectors is really interesting. And, you know, I probably shouldn't say this out loud for posterity, but I don't really care what someone makes, produces, develops, investigates. I think the product or the the pipeline is is really intellectually interesting. And I enjoy that part of understanding what our clients do, but like I'll buy or sell anything. <laughs> I don't really care what it is. And the strategy of any particular transaction, whether it's a $5 million aqua hire that's going to pivot the company into the next trajectory, that's just as interesting to me as the $15 billion sell side deal. So don't tell anyone my little secret, but the parts of the boardroom that are just as interesting to me as the parts of those tiny little aqua hires where we're trying to change the future of the company. But, but it sounds like going back to your discussion of listening to your father talk about what he did, it's as much the dynamics of a negotiation and of business that you find fascinating as whether that business is a reinsurer or a biotech company or a tech company. You know, I hope we get to have a conversation 20 years from now. We probably will only have two listeners, David, but we'll do it anyway. I really believe in my heart of hearts and what gets me up in the morning to sit on Zoom phone calls all day at the moment is this drive to change the way that we do the business of law and to upgrade and up-level the way that we negotiate and bring service to our clients. I'm, that sounds very ethereal and maybe too pie in the sky, but my view is that those of us who sit in the service industry, particularly law, have not just an opportunity, but a responsibility to help the business drivers of our community do things in a more human, more exciting, more authentic way. And so understanding those relationships and those business drivers is fascinating to me. And I take my role as a steward very, very seriously because those of us who play in the new economy of the U.S., we got to start doing stuff better, right? And it's only because there are brave people willing to bring their humanness and their realness to work every day. And I love it when we get to work with executives who say things like, I'm not going to play that game. And I have the confidence to just sit here and wait out the other side. You know, I hear those kinds of things more than I ever have before. And I want to champion those kinds of business people. Turning to specific deals, are, are there any deals you've worked on in the last six months to a year that really, really stand out to you? Yeah. So here, let me put my money where my mouth is on why it's important to highlight things other than what's on the cover of a big uh, news publication. So we've been hitting it out of the park this year. I'm so grateful and I feel really blessed that we're top in the league tables in a lot of different metrics. But let me tell you a story that I'm really proud of. We sold 
the mirror. For those of you who are exercising at home, you may know what I'm talking about, this amazing mirror that puts a really energetic person on the other side of it to show you how to do your workout. And female-led company, female-led legal team, sold to Lululemon earlier this year. And while not a blockbuster price tag and not a blockbuster transaction wasn't extremely complicated, we did manage to get it done in the hardest part of COVID with the most market volatility in the retail sector. Not easy. And it was a joy stewarding the founder, Bryn Putnam, through that transaction. She didn't hire a banker, was convinced that she could sell her company herself with the advice of her board members around her and a great legal team. And it was thrilling to watch a female entrepreneur with her very, very dedicated and disciplined view of her own business effectively take it to market. And it is those kinds of experiences and those kinds of ways of talking about what is really driving the next generation of business leaders that I want to try. And thank you for allowing and indulging me to give a little airtime to because they're really special. They're really special stories. And finally, how are you staying sane in the era of COVID and work from home? Well, first of all, I'm not. And anyone who tells you that they are is probably fibbing. We just got the school supplies for first day of school and included in the school supplies was a recorder with sheet music to Ode to Joy. And I thought, this is a sick joke. (laughs) There's There's no Ode to Joy with a recorder being played in my kitchen. You know, I believe strongly in just trying to enjoy the season that we're all in. You know, my 30s were filled with motorcycle riding and backpacking and climbing big peaks. And my 40s are about my family and keeping things a little more local. So I try to garden or do something in the yard every day, get my hands in the dirt quite literally. I meditate every morning for half an hour and I get outside to exercise and So long as I'm cooking dinner for people a couple nights a week and enjoying food and community around the table, I take it as a win. And I believe strongly that we all need to get outside more often and we all need a connection to nature more often. And that the cycles of just simply being with the air and your breath and the ground underneath your feet is probably much needed. Um, So I try to model that as much as I can, whether it's telling my teammates on deals that I'm headed outside, or I hope everyone takes a 20 minute break and we can come back and finish our page flip later. (laughs) It's important to take those breaks. And I don't know about you, David, but the first part of COVID, I felt magnetized to the computer to be thinking through ways to handle this new work environment or being there for my teammates or my clients. Or if you wanted to talk to me, I would have answered the phone in 20 seconds. Um, To sort of pull ourselves out of that pacing has been very difficult. And I think we're starting to normalize a little bit more, but I I wish everyone would take a walk outside for 20 (laughs) minutes at lunchtime. Oh, it's it's essential. I, I start the day with an hour long walk and it does wonders for my sanity. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jamie. This has been a fantastic conversation and really appreciate your taking the time. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you for looking out for us and for watching us as we go after it in the market this year. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks again, Jamie. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus. 